Chapter Nineteen of the Story of Avis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Story of Avis by Elizabeth Stuart Phelps. Chapter Nineteen. Pro. How long remained the fickle true to thee? Epi. Her vision still is true. Tis ever near me. Goethe's Pandora. Barbara Allen sat on the piano-stool, leaning backward, one elbow upon the music-rack, and the poise of her pleasant figure resting upon the bruised white keys. The sheets of music lay scattered about, one or two had fallen to the floor, they lay with disordered leaves. A hand surprised by some momentary disturbance would have dropped them so. Barbara's touch was habitually self-possessed, that of few women more so. Barbara's head was bent. Her bronze curls fell against her cheek, sweeping clean that fine profile from the comb to the curve of the neck. There were traces of agitation upon her face. Philip Ostrander sat beside her. He had drawn his chair so that its edge and the edge of the piano-stool collided. The hardly acquired housekeeper's impulse in Avis noticed this, even at that moment, and she thought how the varnish was getting rubbed. One of Ostrander's arms was stretched out his hand resting upon the bass-keys. It could not be strictly said that it encircled Barbara's waist, but there was no back to the piano-stool, and Barbara was tired. In his other hand he held—alas! he held her own. There were dimples in Barbara's fingers. She had cool, clear-cut, conscious nails. She had put her hand in Ostrander's, so that the profile of the thumb and first finger was presented to view a constitutional amendment on nature, which a hand not altogether of the smallest may surely find legitimate. Nature had as yet suffered no such surprise in Barbara as to enable her to forget this, but then Barbara had never allowed a man to hold her hand before. Ostrander's eyes were fastened upon Barbara's face. They wore the look which a woman accustomed to the admiration of men would feel, whether through the lid of her eye or her coffin. You think you can watch a woman as you will, sir, because she happens to be at the other end of the room, transfigured in conversation with the hostess, netted in the labyrinth of a crocheted shawl-strap, up to the ears of her soul in the poem or the sonata, promising the next polka to your rival, or adoring the Tintoretto with her cool round shoulders to you? Do you fancy that you can lift an eyelash that she will not know it, any more than you can pass a comment on the weather that she will not hear? Barbara's lashes swept her flushed cheek, but she would have seen Ostrander's look through her back hair. Ostrander's face wore a peculiar illumination when he admired anything—a statue, a picture, or a woman. The corners of his mouth quivered a little, and his lips parted in a smile beside whose silent homage a spoken word would have seemed a definite rudeness. There was a refined, cool light in his eye, too, which Barbara exceedingly admired. She had never seen a man look just like that. His whole bearing was that of one swayed by a delicate intoxication, in which all that was noblest, calmest, and most permanent in himself, deferred to the object which had excited it. It was this look which his wife, years past now, there in the garden studio, when the apple-blossoms fell about them, used to surprise, looking up suddenly from her painting, and then sit lifting her beautiful head gravely beneath it. It was this look which his wife surprised now. Philip Ostrander was called a man of great discretion in his relations to women. 
It is doubtful if his most wayward fancy had ever betrayed him into a positive social imprudence before. What, then, would he have done with Barbara's hand? When Avis saw him lift it, prisoned there like a bird against his leaning shoulder, she stirred and would have uttered his name. Her lips made no sound, but her trailing dress rustled upon the floor. Barbara started. Philip turned slowly around. His wife in the doorway, haggard from her mortal sickness, stood colossal. She was paler, perhaps, than need be in that red drapery. She gathered it, for it had fallen almost to her knee, in one hand. The other was thrust into the empty air. She had never reminded him of her great Venus as she did at that moment. In the blind action of her arm and figure was something of the same shrinking as of a creature from whom a shield had been torn away. The real or fancied similarity in her features, too, was emphasized by the way she held her head. By degrees her pallor deepened dreadfully. Her features seemed to grow thin and sheer like a marble medallion of a spirit. Philip Ostrander looked from her to Barbara's curls, and his eyes dropped like a falling star. Barbara drew away her hand swiftly. He would not have had her do this. It was an implication which, he began angrily to say to himself, the circumstances did not call for. He roused himself at this, and said in his easy way, "'Why, Avis?' But Barbara said nothing. Avis also said nothing, nothing at all. She advanced a step or two into the room, and in silence pointed to the little Egyptian clock upon the mantelpiece, whose bronze sphinx told the hour, seven minutes past two o'clock. With the other hand she pointed to the door. Barbara arose at once. She said she had no idea it was so late. She muttered something about being very sorry, and that she was afraid Avis would take cold. Barbara had never got into such a strait before. She was frightened. Avis did not stir when Barbara left the room, but stood, still pointing with a grand sweep of her arm to the open door. Perhaps never in her youth and joy and colour had she possessed more beauty than at that moment. It was undeniable, explain it as you will, that Ostrander's most conscious emotion just then was one of overpowering admiration for his wife. He felt a kind of terrible, taunting pride in her. He did not believe there was another such woman in the world. He could have flung himself at her feet if he had dared. His eyes, as hers transfixed them, seemed suddenly to reel, then came on their dead, dense look. He appeared to watch her from a vast distance like a being from another sphere, as a dumb animal watches a human face, or the victim of some pitiable mania regards the same. "'Don't be offended over a little thing, Avis,' he began, collecting himself, stumbling into the weakest thing he could have said. He wished hotly that she would have burst into reproaches, accusations, into a passion of repulse or rebuke. The woman who does this puts herself at radical disadvantage with most men. Perhaps, mingled with the unworthy consciousness of this little psychological fact, a nobler impulse stirred in Ostrander's heart. Perhaps he knew that he deserved the worst she could have given, and it might have been a certain relief to him just then, to get what he deserved. But Avis answered him not a word. Her lip curled slightly, his wife's lip, curled above him as she stood looking down. A single articulate syllable would have broken the exquisite edge of her scorn, but she did not utter it. He felt under her silence as men may under crucifixion, which does not permit the victim even to writhe. "'You are making a mountain out of a molehill,' he said irritably, rising with his fugitive look, determined to put an end to this dumb and dangerous scene. "'And it is a terrible imprudence for you to be here in the cold. 
You will have a relapse to-morrow. Let me help you up the stairs." Advancing, he put out both hands, and would have touched, supporting her. But Avis, with a slight imperious gesture, waved him away. "'Very well,' he said. "'Have it as you will.' He stood to watch her from the bottom of the stairs, anxious for her, till he should see her safely up. She had swept by him with a certain strength, but tottered on the first stair. He sprang and caught her, held her for one moment so impetuously, that his trained ear detected the irregular sluggish beating of her heart, a paralytic beat. It alarmed him, and he said hurriedly, "'You are not fit to get up by yourself. Don't be so hard on a man, Avis.' But she disengaged herself and crawled up alone. He followed at a little distance to catch her if she fell. Thus they reached the landing, and she went on into the faded rose-red room and shut the door. The wind was rising as she went in. She crawled weakly into bed and lay with her hands crossed, listening to it. It blew all night fitfully, like the resolve of some great, live, lawless nature. But it rose perceptibly from hour to hour. Towards morning it lulled. In the morning Aunt Chloe came over, and Barbara sent up word that if she could be spared perhaps she had better go home. Avis replied that she should like to see her. Barbara came awkwardly enough. She had been crying, and her front hair was out of crimp. Avis looked at her with gaunt, insomniac eyes. It was evident that she had not slept, but she was quite at ease. She thanked Barbara for all her kindness, and bade her a grave good-bye. Barbara looked sullen for a minute, then a quiver ran through the bronze curls. She began to sob. "'Pray don't,' said Avis wearily. "'I am not quite strong enough to—see people cry. But I understand your feeling. It is so dangerous for a woman to commit an indecorum. Society does not excuse her as it does a man. Will you ask Aunt Chloe to bring the children up?" Avis spoke gently. A certain terror fell upon her at finding in her own heart no sting sharper than that of a sad scorn. She had rather hoped that she might find herself a little jealous of Barbara. She hung over her love for her husband, as we hang over a precious, diseased life, of which we have not the courage to despair. She fanned it wildly. Better fire than frost! better the seething than the freezing death. But all her soul was numb. She looked calmly at Barbara's curls and fresh maiden colours and attitudes. She could not be jealous of so slight a thing. With a sickening dismay she perceived that Philip, he too, began to seem to her small and far, like a figure seen in the valley of an incoherent dream. She felt as if she had suddenly stepped into a world of pygmies, and had a Lilliputian code to learn before she could take up the duties of citizenship therein. Barbara stopped crying. She stole downstairs with dry, startled eyes. An indecorum? Society? Excuse? Barbara repeated the words confusedly. Two weeks ago she would have regarded the supposition that any human lip would ever tell her she had been indecorous, with a pleasant unconcern, like that with which she regarded the habits of the cavemen, or the subject of unconscious cerebration. Barbara thought she ought to see Philip Ostrander at once, and ask him if he thought any harm was done. But he was in the study, and the door was locked. When he came out he asked where she was, and his little boy told him she had gone. Now Barbara forgot to take her sun-umbrella. It was the middle of the afternoon before Ostrander saw it, a pretty purple-silk toy, hanging by the clutch of a little ivory hand upon the hat-tree. Ostrander saw it, and thought he had better carry it over to her. He must walk somewhere. Under the circumstances it would be more fitting that Barbara should not come for it. 
It would be pleasanter, indeed, for Avis, he said to himself, and Avis had expressed no wish to see him to-day. He put on his hat and strolled out, carrying the parasol. A delicate perfume hung about it, something that he had never known any woman but Barbara to use. He remembered that he fancied it when she was taking care of that gunshot wound. Barbara had certainly been very kind to them both. It was not right that his wife's overscrupulousness should act unpleasantly upon her. The least that a sense of honour demanded of him now was to see to it that Barbara should not in any manner suffer from his folly. If he did not guard her, nobody would. No man with a spark of chivalry in him would allow the woman whom he had so unfortunately drawn into a trifling imprudence to meet the consequences of it unwarned or unshared. Then, too, he would not be misunderstood himself in the affair, if he could help it. If he had said anything that sounded indiscreet—and he could not remember that he had, really—it would be better to explain to Barbara precisely what he did mean. There should be no mistake in the thing anywhere. There was no need that any man with a sound head should get into that fog-bank of relations in which men and women were always going astray for simple lack of a clear understanding each of what the other wanted. He thought the sooner he had a talk with Barbara, the better. He went to her brother's house, and she presented herself at once. Her eyelids were still delicately discoloured, like rain-beaten flowers, with tears. Ostrander did not go in, but stood in the hall, hesitating. He said, "'Here is your parasol.' And Barbara thanked him, and then there was an awkward pause. "'I want to see you, a few moments,' said Ostrander gravely. "'There is company in the parlour,' replied Barbara, with downcast eyes. "'It is pleasant on the beach this afternoon,' urged Ostrander impulsively. It did not seem quite possible now to go home without seeing Barbara alone. Barbara said, "'Just as you like.' She got her hat, and they went out in silence together into the hot summer afternoon. When they reached the beach, he said, "'It'll be cooler on the water.' Nothing but commonplaces occurred to him. He pushed down the boat, his wife's little dory, and helped Barbara in. She slipped, and he caught her, but neither spoke. She released her hands slowly. An old fisherman stood on the beach, hauling his dirty boat with a rasping noise across the coarse grey sand. "'I wouldn't put up that there sail if I was you,' he said. "'And why not?' argued Ostrander, glad to have something to smile at just then. Avis and he had always differed about that sail. She never used it. "'You mote as well put spurs onto an angel as a sail onto a dory.' observed the fisherman, dogmatically moistening his hands for another tug at his boat. "'Tain't in the nature of a dory to stand it. There's nature in boats likewise as there's nature in fishes and folks. No use rowin' again tide and no of us. A dory now knows what she wants done as clear as yo do, or the lady. If I was yo, I wouldn't cross her.' "'I wouldn't either,' said Barbara. So Ostrander took the oars. He rowed hard, but composedly, with the long, virile Harmouth stroke. He rowed quite into the heart of the harbour, but few boats were in sight. He drew in his oars, and they drifted beneath the blazing sky. Barbara put up the sun-umbrella, and they sat under it in a purple light. The breeze struck pleasantly across the bay, and the sun dipped. The wind lifted one of Barbara's curls and blew it softly against his cheek. He looked at her, but she did not return his look. She sat quite still. "'I am very sorry.' he began, and stopped. What in the name of reason was he to say he was sorry for? Barbara came to his aid. She turned her head. The wind was at her back, and carried all her hair forward, so that her face looked out of a soft aureola. She said, "'Avis was very much annoyed.' "'I suppose so,' answered Ostrander irritably. 
do you think, asked Barbara timidly, that any—anything unpleasant, any harm will come? Harm cannot come where there is no harm, said Ostrander, suddenly remembering that this was the thing to say. Certainly not, replied Barbara more courageously. The whole world is welcome to hear anything that I have ever said to you, Miss Barbara, he went on in a confident clear tone. Why, of course, said Barbara. It seemed for the moment to make quite sure of it, that he should say it, and that she should assent to it. He took up the oars with a sigh of relief, and instinctively perhaps made toward the shore, as if it were safer to let this scene end just where it was. The tide, while they drifted, had turned. He rowed a few minutes in the hot sun laboriously, and then laid down the oars. He came and sat under the sun-umbrella. Barbara's face looked unusually tender in the purple light. Their eyes met. Necessarily they sat so near that he could perceive the agitated fluctuation of her breath. "'The man was right,' he said in a low tone. "'It is of no use to row against the tide.' "'Oh, hush!' said Barbara. "'It is possible to say a very dangerous thing in a perfectly safe way.' Ostrander's readiness both of the lip and the fancy at once exposed and protected him in the possession of this perilous power. When he said, "'It is of no use to row against the tide,' he certainly was not altogether thinking of the tides of Harmouth Harbour. But when Barbara not only perceived that he was not, but committed the mistake of letting him know that she perceived it, he fell back at once upon the literal significance of his words. Instinctively he had provided himself with a barricade of such significance. If one trench had failed, he would have withdrawn to another, strictly, in his own view at least, on terms of honourable retreat. This is one of the accidents liable to a lithe mind, and may fasten itself upon a nature of great delicacy, in rare cases upon one of real rectitude. Ostrander regarded Barbara with a certain gentlemanly surprise, and saying in his usual voice, "'However, we will try again,' took up the oars. But the tide set sternly against him, and he perceived now how far they had drifted. His friend the fisherman was abreast of them. He sat in the sun, hauling out his nets, still as a figure in the foreground of a marine picture. "'With your permission,' said Ostrander, after a few minutes' very unplatonic hard work, "'I think we will put up the sail. There is not wind enough to trouble a nautilus.' He put it up, and they glided along quietly. The swifter motion at once rested and excited him. When Barbara said, "'How pleasant it was!' his deepening voice and eyes answered, I am afraid it is too pleasant. But Barbara did not say, Oh, hush! She knew better this time. They were sitting so, she leaning over the gunwale like a violet, with the purple light over her white dress, when a slight stir struck the perfectly calm water, as if the feet of an unseen spirit trod across it. Then the whole bay seemed to gather her bright shoulders and shiver a little. Then the near waves crinkled and curdled, as flesh does with fear. Ostrander sprang to wrench the little mast out of its socket, just as the dory reeled. He was too late. As he went down, he saw the fisherman leaning, gunwale to the water's edge, the fine lines that his black net made against the sky, and the wreath of smoke from his pipe. Distinctly he thought what a good sketch Avis would make of it. Then he thought how the bay looked like a lake of blue fire, and how he and Barbara were going into it together. The last thing that occurred to him was— we have been struck by a white squall. By the time that he had begun to ascend, he was not conscious of any coherent idea, except that if he and Barbara were drowned, then and there together, his wife would believe him a rascal to the end of her life, and then he knew that the mere fact of dying was only an incident in that supreme despair. He struggled up and struck out madly. 
Barbara was clinging to the bottom of the dory. She was calling to him. He seemed a great way off. The water between them, calm now as outworn feeling, was a cold and deadly blue. Once more he thought of the lake of fire, and of those terrible old Bible metaphors that played upon it in such a ghastly way. He made his way rather weakly. Who would have believed that the blazing summer sea could hold so cold a heart? The fisherman was coming with long, sharp, agitated strokes. The water reeled under his blows. Ostrander's head reeled, too. He was growing very cold. A paralytic thickening of the tendons, and stiffening in his muscles, had crept upon him. "'My God!' he said aloud. "'Am I going to have the cramp?' Then the boat made a great leap, and recoiled on itself like a jaguar, and snatched him up. "'You took me before the lady!' cried Ostrander, horror-struck. "'The lady does very well,' said he of the sea imperturbably. "'As long as they can screech, they ain't cramped. Just you stay where you be, you mote be took in again, and she's pretty solid. I'll haul her in." Barbara was hauled in, hand over hand, like a mackerel-net. The dory was righted and taken in tow. Possibly the whole thing had taken seven minutes. The fisherman had not removed the pipe from his mouth. Ostrander and Barbara sat awkwardly and miserably in the dirty boat. When the fish flopped in the net, and an eel in the struggle for existence, jumped into Barbara's lap, Ostrander felt as if he were watching the blue devils in the last act of some second-rate opera. The purple umbrella was gone. High in the western heavens the holy sun peered into their faces. His fastidious fancy revolted from this grotesque, satiric ending to a highly wrought experience. He would have found it hard to explain why he felt as if it must be, somehow, Barbara's fault. He could not imagine his wife, for instance, in the same boat with an eel. At all events she would not have shrieked at it. He was surprised to find how it altered Barbara's appearance to have her curls washed straight. The fisherman took the pipe from his mouth as they grated on the solitary beach. "'Maybe,' he said, "'you'll remember next time not to hurt the feelings of a dory. A dory's like a lady, sir. The man that slights it has to pay for it fast or last. She's tender in the feelings, a dory is.' He had landed them, as chance would have it, just off the lighthouse reef, and Barbara and Ostrander walked up through the divorced gorge together. Barbara did not understand the expression which his face had assumed. She thought him very cross. He, for his part, was not thinking about Barbara at all. He and Barbara parted miserably enough at the edge of the town. They agreed that it was better so. Barbara protested that she was not very wet, and preferred to take care of herself. When he said that he supposed it would attract less attention, she assented decidedly. She said she was sorry that they went to row. She asked him if he were going to tell Avis. Barbara was thoroughly alarmed. Ostrander quickly went home. As he passed his wife's room she called him. The door was open. Avis sat upon the edge of the bed, partly dressed. She had thrown a thick shawl about her, and her bare feet, with which it seemed she had been trying her strength, hung weakly just touching the floor. Something in her attitude—whether it were the weakness or the strength of it, its courage or despair—affected Ostrander powerfully. He stopped in the doorway feeling disgraced and miserable. He did not cross the threshold of his wife's room. She said rapidly, "'What has happened, Philip?' "'I was out in the dory and got struck by a white squall. That is all, except that I had the cramp and a mackerel-boat picked me up.' Ostrander brought the words out stolidly. He did not exactly mean to appeal to her fear or sympathy, yet he felt conscious of some disappointment that she exhibited no sign of either. She said, "'Was Barbara with you?' "'Yes,' said Ostrander, doggedly. His quick sense of irritation rose. He was not going to stand and defend himself like a schoolboy. There was a long silence. 
Well, he said, breaking it uneasily, I must go and get out of these wet things. It will be best for both of us, said Avis in a low voice after yet another pause, in which she had sat with her eyes upon the floor, but rising now and slipping to her feet. If this thing is to go on, if you wish to indulge platonic friendships with other women, that your wife should not be unnecessarily insulted by it. You would agree with me, I am sure, that I had better take the children, and go to father's for a while." When he was gone, she crawled back into bed. The words of the woman Susan Jessop had dogged her thoughts that day. He got tired of me. I thought he would get tired of every other woman. Oddly beside them stepped in that hideous old rhyme of Goethe's. The false one looked for a daintier lot. The constant one wearied me out and out. These pursued her like the jingle on the hand-organ that follows us seven squares away. She hated her own heart for giving hospitality to such words. The children were laughing in the nursery. Birds broke their hearts for joy upon the window-ledge. She shrank as she listened, turning wearily in the bed. All sweet sounds in life seemed to have fallen suddenly a semitone too high or too low for her, so that harmony itself became an exquisite ingenuity of discord. She seemed to herself like that afflicted musician, to whose physical ear this happened, or like that other, who stood stone-deaf in the middle of his orchestra. How could they ever hear, she and Philip now, the perfect music of a happy home again? She struggled with the unique dismay which overtakes the woman who first learns that she has married a capricious man. Avis thought that if her husband had committed a forgery, or been brought home drunk, she should have seen more distinctly, at least more clearly, where her duty lay. She was sure that she should have gone on loving him, in fierce proportion to the depth of his fall, till death had resolved all love to elements so simple, that it knew no code of duty, and needed no spoken bond. But then he would have loved her. She could not spend herself for the husband whose tone and touch had hardened to her. She could not cast away the pearls of wifehood, that were to commit the unpardonable sin of married story. But Ostrander came back presently, manfully enough, to his wife's room. He was startled by what she had said, and touched by the gentle dignity with which she had said it. Then the consciousness of clean linen is in and of itself a source of moral strength only second to that of a clean conscience. A well-ironed collar, or a fresh glove, has carried many a man through the emergency in which a wrinkle or a rip would have defeated him. Ostrander came in, looking very clean and comfortable, shut the door, and sat down by his wife on the edge of the bed. He leaned, putting one arm over her where there was room to support himself, upon his hand. Avis stirred uneasily, and he removed it. "'You have given me no chance, Avis,' he began, "'to explain myself. I don't see, but I must take it.' "'What is the use?' asked Avis drearily. "'I don't understand your disinclination to discuss the matter,' said Ostrander, flushing slightly. "'There is nothing to discuss,' said his wife, turning her head from side to side upon the pillow. "'When a man has ceased to love his wife, that is not a subject of discussion between them.' "'Upon your own lips rests the shadow from those words,' he cried with a heroic air. "'I did not utter them. I scorn to deny that I have ceased to love my wife.' "'You adopt a singular method of expressing your affection,' said Avis. She was terrified at her own words as soon as they were spoken. Roots of bitterness and blight seemed to be fastening upon her soul, like a fungoid disease upon the flesh. "'Well, admit, then,' he said, with a peculiarly winning air of patient sadness, that my love is not quite the same as it was, that it has assumed with time a different form and different force." "'Oh, hush!' cried Avis. She could not help it. 
The imperious impulse of the woman overswept her. When her husband understated in her ears that which her own voice had underscored, she felt as if she had plunged a knife into a dissolving ghost and drawn it back, reeking with human blood. All was over now, she thought. They never could look at each other with tender fictions in their glance again. Their four lips had spoken in the terrible truth. In their eyes forever would be the memory of it. "'I am sorry,' continued Ostrander sadly, "'but my peculiar temperament has brought you into suffering. I ought to have foreseen it, but I had more confidence in myself than events have warranted.' "'Do you care for—do you love Barbara?' asked Avis abruptly. Her voice rang foreign to her own ears. The whole scene moved on dimly to her as if they sat on some solemn historic tribunal, weighing the fate of two strangers whose life hung in their trembling hands. "'Love her? No!' thundered Ostrander, recoiling. "'What is it like, I wonder?' asked Avis. "'To feel as you do. I am not made so as to understand it, Philip.' "'You may thank heaven you are not,' murmured Ostrander, exactly as if she had inquired of him touching the sufferings consequent upon some physical deformity. "'Is it friendship you seek?' went on Avis, simply. "'My husband was my friend. I needed no other.' "'That is your temperament,' said Ostrander. "'Mine is different. I am sorry it is so. I don't know what more I can say.' It is impossible to convey the absence of self-insistence and presence of gentle regret by which Ostrander contrived to transfigure these feeble words. They seemed, as he uttered them, to be the outgrowth of a delicate and forbearing reticence, in itself the index of essential strength. Avis lay for a few moments with a pathetic confusion on her worn face. Her husband made her feel as if she were dealing with an afflicted man. "'It is harder to be the subject than the object of an infirmity,' he went on. Do me the justice, Avis, to remember that I must suffer more in discovering that my affection is capable of change than you can in the consequences of such a fact." "'That will do,' said Avis, faintly, after a silence. "'It is a waste of strength for us to talk. We do not understand each other.' "'I repeat,' he said more earnestly, "'that I am sorry for the whole thing. You shall not be annoyed again. Don't take the children to father's just yet.' He leaned over her, smiling but her soul sickened within her. He had rather expected to kiss her, but the expression of her mouth deterred him. He would as soon have dared to kiss the Melian Venus. How could he know that a great impulse came upon her to throw herself upon his heart and sob her misery out? It seemed incredible that Philip could not help her to bear it. They had been so dear to each other for so long. Then she thought how he would soothe her, and how she should writhe to remember it. He did not love her. He was her husband. Humiliation beyond humiliation forever now lay in his caress. She gave him her hand gravely, like a courteous acquaintance. She thought, I would have clung to you. But she said only, Well, Philip, we must make the best we can of it. After a silence, she added, We shall always need each other's forbearance, though, she could not bring herself to say, though we have lost each other's love. And then Van ran in, radiant and indescribable. He had invited Marianne and the Kitty to a party. He had been dressing his hair, with the prepared glue. Barbara that afternoon curled her hair, with cheeks hotter than the seething tongs. She had made up her mind that it would be best for her to marry before long. She thought perhaps she had amused herself with men about long enough. Barbara was exceedingly disconcerted at what had happened. She hoped that there would be no talk. Barbara could think of nothing worse than to be talked about. She had never forgotten herself before. 
In Barbara's set in Harmouth young ladies did not flirt with married men. Barbara had never been the least in love with Philip Ostrander. But, strictly speaking, it could not be said that she had ever quite forgiven him for not having fallen in love with herself before he married Avis. Yet she knew it was expecting too much of the masculine perception that he should understand all that. Probably he would go to his grave supposing that she cared. No more subtly confusing type of woman than Barbara is as yet rudimentary in the world. That man must have a keen and modest eye who will distinguish her vanity from her tenderness, or her love of his admiration from her love of himself. Barbara thought she should marry a minister. One day, not long after, John Rose ran over to High Street. There was a poor fellow who could not get a scholarship, and Mrs. Ostrander had promised some flannels to those Pinkham babies, and Coy sent over a taste of snow-pudding, and so on. But, when he went away, he put one finger upon Ostrander's arm with a delicate yet deepening pressure. Ostrander followed him at once to the street. "'I suppose you know,' began John Rose, hesitating gravely, at least I thought I had better call your attention to the fact that Harmouth is very much occupied just now with—that accident in the dory." "'The mischief it is,' said Ostrander, stopping short. There was a silence in which the two young men walked up and down in front of the gate. Avis watched them from the windows contentedly. She always liked to see her husband and John Rose together. She thought, or rather she felt, that John's must be one of the golden natures of which it would be possible to say, as was said of one of the grandest of our time, the noblest words that can be spoken of any human life. There never lived a truer friend." Ostrander put his hand upon the other's shoulder as they walked, and leaned upon it heavily. "'Seriously so, Rose?' he asked. "'Not unkindly so, I think,' said Rose thoughtfully. "'But there is some unnecessary and annoying gossip. It will soon blow over. But I thought—excuse uh, me, Phil—it would be as well for you to understand it at the outset.' John said Ostrander, after a longer silence than before, "'If it be possible, you will help me, old fellow, I know. I hope my wife may never hear of this.' She never did. End of chapter 19